Hello, this is Steve Bailey. Happy to have you aboard for episode five of Laughing Gas, a Charlie Chaplin podcast. Now, I had promised that I was going to do Chaplin's movies in chronological order, and I want to continue to do so. However, I realize that uh, getting through his Keystone and SNA's movies, interesting as they are, is kind of a slog to get to the, the really meaty stuff. So I'm going to compromise just a little. I left off with a thief catcher in the last episode, the, undiscovered, the until recently undiscovered Charlie Chaplin film from 1914. So what I think I will do from here on in is I will do two films in chronological order, and then I will finish with one of his more famous movies. And I will do that with each episode, so there's a little something that everybody can relate to, Chaplin-wise. So to start off with the chronological stuff, let's go back to March 2, 1914, and cover the short subject, A Film Johnny. The minimal plot of this movie is that Charlie, as an outsider, sneaks inside the Keystone Studios during work hours and generally wreaks havoc on the movies being filmed. It's a cute enough premise for a one-reeler, but the movie is an obvious sign that Chaplin still had a way to go in his movie apprenticeship. It wouldn't be long before moviegoers were wishing they could sneak onto a studio a lot to see him at work. Probably the best gag in the movie is, is Roscoe Arbuckle as himself, meeting Charlie, sizing Charlie up, and then surreptitiously giving him a handout. Uh, next we go to, also from March 1914, Tango Tangles. <laughs> Lapses of logic abound in this movie, even so more so than in the usual Keystone film. The most startling surprise is that Chaplin, Ford Sterling, and Roscoe Arbuckle here do their clowning without their usual costumes. It's a dramatic demonstration of how much their given personas add to the comedy. Without the getup, they could be any three men horsing around. Sterling and Arbuckle play the band leader and a clarinetist, respectively, of a dance hall band. The movie begins with Sterling getting romantic with the woman he thinks is his girlfriend, only to have Arbuckle come around and assertively tell Sterling, She's mine, I saw her first. Sexual politics in 1914. A girlfriend was automatically, or was apparently determined by who saw her first, and the girl has no say in the matter. I wonder how different some, <clears throat> some of these comedies would be if the girl voiced her opinion about these strutting macho men. Anyway, Chaplin plays a slightly drunk dance hall customer who decides to declare his possession of the girl as well, while the other two men are playing in the band. In a bonafide Chaplin film, Chaplin would make short shrift of Sterling, but Sterling leaves his post at the band, fights with Charlie, and actually gets the upper hand, topped off by his doing the arms spreading smug triumph gesture that Chaplin eventually made his own. Sterling's victory is short-lived, though. Roscoe comes out onto the dance floor as well and reasserts his grift over Sterling's. Running away to lick his wounds, he runs into Charlie again, and even though both men have lost the girl for good, Sterling still wants to finish his fight with Charlie. Why? 
because there's still footage to tick off on this one reeler, I suppose. Seeing the trio in their dandified streetwear, you can't help thinking that maybe Tango Tangles was a film rehearsal for another, far superior, short subject. And now let me cover uh, one of Chaplin's most famous feature films, 1925's The Gold Rush. I know there has not been much praise that hasn't already been bandied about for this classic movie, but I'd like to add my two cents worth anyway. If you want to introduce Chaplin to someone who has never seen his work, this one has it all. There's, of course, Chaplin's tramp, here dubbed the Lone Prospector, trying to survive during gold and cold strikes in Alaska, a lovely heroine, Georgia, played by Georgia Hale, a dance hall girl with whom Charlie becomes smitten, and villains big and small, the big represented by Black Larson, played by Tom Murray, one of those great wordless silent movie villains who exists just to be mean, medium size Jack, played by Malcolm White, who thinks he deserves Georgia more than Charlie does, and small, at least threat-wise, Big Jim McKay, played by the wonderful Max Swain, who starts out tolerating Charlie and then takes him to heart. The movie also has set pieces that are now silent film folklore. The boiling of the shoe in lieu of a Thanksgiving turkey, Charlie entertaining his guests with a roll dance, and a roll call of memorable gags. You gotta love Chaplin doing the chicken. And the pathos is perfect here, never done to excess. After all, who couldn't feel for Charlie, all alone on New Year's Eve when Georgia had half-heartedly promised she'd visit him? Countless critics have complained about Chaplin's cheapness, how he often spared a buck to do a realistic special effect. Have you ever noticed that nobody ever complains about cheapness for the gold rush? There's probably little of this movie that couldn't be done just as effectively on stage as a play. But when Charlie and Big Jim are about to go over the cliff inside their cabin in the movie's climax, I don't care if that cabin is a model or not. You feel every inch of that potential fall. P.S. My favorite moment in the entire movie is when Big Jim, having made his way safely out of the tottering cabin and found his lost gold stake, suddenly breaks out of his reverie when Charlie yells for help. Cut to a wide-eyed Charlie beckoning a single finger to Big Jim, as if he was just asking for help cleaning up the cabin. Some movies go straight past the logical side of your brain and head for that primal spot where the kid in you still resides and responds. When such a movie fails or goes over the top, you find yourself embarrassed to look at the screen. When the movie is operating in all excuse me, on all cylinders, it is something like the gold rush. One more note I'd like to add. In 1942, Chaplin released an updated sound version of the gold rush with music composed by him and with his narration replacing the silent movie subtitles. This version retains most of the charm of the original, but it must be said that Chap some of Chaplin's narration is superfluous, laboriously explaining gags that we've seen acted out perfectly right in front of us. Chaplin's naysayers have long complained that once he abandoned silent film for talkies, Chaplin suddenly couldn't keep his mouth shut. The sound version of The Gold Rush might be the most blatant example of this. Newcomers and purists should stick with the original. Well, that's it for this episode. Let me mention just a couple of other things. I have a Facebook page called Another Charlie Chaplin Facebook Page. So find me there on Facebook. If you would like to email me about the pod, this podcast, I adore feedback. So by all means, please email me at laughinggaspodcast at outlook.com. And lastly, I would like to plug a couple of other podcasts that I am doing. Uh, I have recently completed a podcast on the films of Laurel and Hardy, uh, that podcast is named Hard Boiled Eggs and Nuts, and you can find it at anchor.fm dash, I'm not, sorry, slash Hard Boiled Eggs and Nuts. And 
Secondly, I am also devoting a podcast to uh, the Fleischer Brothers Popeye cartoons of the 1930s, the black and white cartoons. So I'm currently in progress on that one. But if you would like to listen to it, I invite you to do so. You can find that one at anchor.fm and then slash and then blow me down a Fleischer Popeye podcast with a dash between each word. Blow dash me dash down dash etc. So I hope you'll give a listen to those. If this is your first time listening to my Chaplin podcast, I welcome you. I hope you will listen to the previous four episodes and also subscribe to it. As there are plenty more episodes to come, I promise. And so, until next time, this is Steve Bailey saying goodbye, farewell, and thank you for stopping by.